Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace that takes our sin, that calls us friend, and that pays our debt completely. Lord, those are amazing truths that we need to hear time and time again. We need to remember. And we ask, Lord, for your grace now that you would be with us, help us to see you more clearly, help us to be transformed by your word, to love you more, to treasure you more. And we ask that your spirit would be present just in planting these truths in our hearts and challenging us to change, to turn from our sin, to trust in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to be talking about forgiveness. Do you think forgiveness is important? If you were to grade it on a scale of 1 to 10 and jot it down in your notes, how important would you say forgiveness is? More important question, does Scripture talk about the topic of forgiveness very much? Well, I can tell you that it is pervasive. It talks about forgiveness a lot, and there's lots of different words and terminology that's used when it's talking about forgiveness. And this morning, in our introduction, I really wanted to take us on a bit of a tour through Scripture to kind of see how Scripture talks about forgiveness. And to talk about it, we have to start all the way back in the beginning. So in the beginning, in Genesis, God created everything, and it was very good. He created Adam and Eve, and they sinned against his good rules, and they broke a right relationship before God. But God provided a promise, a promise of restoration and a promise of forgiveness to be made right before God. God chose Abraham, and Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness before God. And that idea of righteousness before God is that he says, you are unrighteous and a sinner, and I am counting you, declaring you right before me. That's forgiveness. Then we look and see it as great-grandson Joseph is a classic example of forgiveness and reconciliation in light of God's sovereign plan. Fast-forwarding still, we see the Mosaic Law, which is supposed to reveal our sinfulness, and the Levitical Law, which shows us that we need atonement. There needs to be payment for our sin to be made right with God. All forgiveness language. King David sees his great sin and says that this is against God primarily that he only can forgive and restore the joy of his salvation with the Lord. Psalms and Proverbs repeatedly praises God for his forgiveness, for the redeeming of his people, and for teaching us to forgive one another in love. The pre-exilic prophets warned the people of Israel, turn back to God and he will forgive, but they would not. Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant says it plainly for us. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jeremiah's prophecy of the new covenant speaks of putting his law on our hearts and states, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Ezekiel prophesied as well that God would remove from us a heart of stone and put in his people a heart of flesh. And he said, 
I will deliver my people from all their uncleanness, delivery from our sin. Even in exile, the prophet Daniel showed his nation's helplessness, apart from God's action to save when he prayed, For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. The post-exilic prophets uh, continued with the same theme, right? We see it all the way through. Zechariah foretold of a day when the fountain from the house of David would open up to cleanse God's people from their sin and uncleanness. This theme is all throughout the Old Testament, both in models and promises that point to the coming of a righteous king who would make all things right, who would bring back and make right his people. God did not leave his people dead in their sins and in their unrighteousness, but at the right time sent his son into our mess, leaving the praise of angels for the scorn of men. And why? Why would he do this? It's for what? Forgiveness, right? For forgiveness. We see it all the way through. The angel Gabriel appeared to Joseph in a dream to tell Jesus that to tell of Jesus' coming, he said, Jesus will save his people from their sins. That's right. Zechariah the priest prophesied that Jesus would give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Zechariah's son, John the Baptist, exclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is continuing on with Jesus' own ministry. Jesus himself set his face towards sinners. That's what it says in Mark. And he forgave the worst of them. Jesus taught us to prioritize in our prayer to ask for God's forgiveness because we need it. It's our greatest need. At the Last Supper, what did Jesus say to his disciples? This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. On the cross, our Savior hung in unimaginable pain, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And he cried out to his Father, forgive them. Jesus was pouring out God's forgiveness by the wounds of wicked men on the cross, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. But three days later, God triumphantly raised his son from the dead, pronouncing for all eternity the satisfaction and the security of God's forgiveness for the sins of his people, just as he promised that he would. And it doesn't stop there, does it? Jesus commissioned his disciples to tell everyone. Luke records it this way. Then Jesus opened the disciples' minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. So guess what they did? They preached. 
They preached that people need their sins to be forgiven by Jesus Christ. The book of Acts is testimony to that. Stephen gave this long history lesson, I guess it goes with the name, summed up basically saying, you're a bunch of stiff-necked, hard-hearted people that killed the prophets that told of the coming righteous one, and you killed the righteous one. He basically closed up with just saying, you may have the law, but you are sure not righteous. So what did they do? They killed him. And like his Savior before him, and by God's grace, he saw his people's greatest need, and he cried out to God, asking that he would not hold that sin against them. The apostles wrote about it in all the epistles, so that the new churches that were being established, and even our church today, and churches for generations to come, could know about man's need for God's forgiveness of sin. Even right now, this morning, we've rehearsed this amazing truth and we've sung about it, powerfully shouting out praise to our God for his grace that takes away our sin, that calls us friend, and that pays my debt completely. And friends, this is just a foretaste of the joy we will experience when he takes us home to be with him because of his forgiveness. When the innumerable crowds will exalt Jesus Christ, singing, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wisdom and wealth and might and honor and glory and blessing. That will be our song for eternity. A song of praise to Jesus Christ. A song of forgiveness for what he's done for us. Here's the shorter summary if you're taking notes. There's a problem. The problem is we need forgiveness. There's a promise for forgiveness of our sins. There's a provision and a payment so that forgiveness can be given. And then we proclaim this message of forgiveness to everyone. And there will be praise forever because of the forgiveness bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. So question, following up this summary of forgiveness, it's important, it's vital, it's a crucial piece to the gospel. So do you think that Satan wants to distort or twist our understanding of forgiveness? Yeah, big time. Here are some ways that I've heard people describe forgiveness. God is so loving that he just sat aside justice so that you could be with him forever. Or maybe you've heard it this way, God will forgive me because that's his job. What else does he do? Or maybe sometimes we think God is like us. Our forgiveness is, is lacking often. It's stingy. Selfish, I'll forgive you if I have to. And sometimes we lay that onto God and think that's the way He forgives us. Or maybe you've heard it in a counseling setting where there are seven stages of forgiveness, and it always starts with everyone in the room acknowledging that you are the victim. Everyone needs to confess perfectly their sins to you the way you see it, and then we can talk about taking steps toward forgiveness, maybe. 
When we define forgiveness based on our personal experiences or our fallen heart's desires or worldly psychology and philosophies, we are sure to get it wrong. You might as well blindfold me, spin me around a dozen times, and tell me to pin the tail on the donkey. I think I'm more likely to pin my neck than pin the actual tail on the donkey correctly. But our goal this morning is to refuse the blindfold, to steady ourselves from the dizzying worldly lies by focusing on the source. By looking into God's word and letting the truth about who God is and how he forgives and why he forgives shape and even change the way we think about forgiveness. To do that, this morning we are going to dive into the book of Romans. If you would turn with me to Romans chapter 3, this will be our primary text this morning. I know many of you read through several passages in preparation, and the Lord, as I was diving into this topic, really kind of pinned me down in Romans. And if you've ever started a project in your house, just patching up a piece of drywall or fixing something under the sink and it turns into a kitchen remodel or you have a brand new bathroom, that's what diving into forgiveness has been. For me, and I'm excited to look at God's word to let it, again, train us, focus us into what God's forgiveness is like, how he forgives and why he forgives. And they give you kind of the structure or the the outline a little bit of what we're going to be doing. We're going to be in Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26. And the first three verses kind of set for us the context. Um, Paul is... Uh, making a theological argument here, and he's summarizing in the first three verses arguments he's made in the first two and a half chapters, and then really diving into the topic of forgiveness, of the gospel, of salvation, in Romans three twenty four through 26. So we'll start out by just really grazing through the first half and picking out these pieces from the first couple chapters of What are the parameters with which he's making this argument? There are three primary things to set the context. One is that we can't be righteous from the law. It's insufficient to make us righteous with God. Secondly, righteousness must be received through faith. We need the righteousness of God. Thirdly, that we are unrighteous, that all mankind is unrighteous. And we can see this in these first three verses, but first I'm going to read for us some complimentary verses, and then we'll read them. So the first verse about being separate from the law is in chapter 3, verse 20, right before. It says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We can't be made righteous from the law. We are sinners And we can't be justified, which means declared righteous by God's right judgment. Secondly, we see really the flushing out of the theme. If you flip back a page in chapter 1, star these verses, Romans 1, 16, and 17, because this is his thesis statement. This is the key verses that tell you what Paul is trying to do all the way through this letter. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He's keying in on salvation and saying what we need is the righteousness of God. And then thirdly, his argument for three different sections has been that Gentiles are unrighteous, the Jews are unrighteous as much as they try to keep the law. And then in chapter 3, 9 through 20, he says, all men deserve God's just judgment. We see that in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, very familiar verses. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. All mankind is unrighteous and God is perfectly righteous and the law cannot make us righteous in God's eyes. Let's read 21 through 23 of chapter 3 in Romans. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the setup, the context for the argument, and we know that he transitions here to tell us the, the answer of how, how is this possible to be forgiven, to be made righteous? How is this possible? And the key word for us is in the next verse, says, and are justified. Justified. What does it mean to be justified? Well, as we mentioned earlier, justification is God declaring someone righteous. God is a righteous and holy judge. He doesn't judge anything wrong ever. And how does he declare an unrighteous, a sinner, who has offended a holy God? How can he declare him righteous? This word triggers for us kind of like if you've watched the cartoons and the good guys are kind of bouncing around trying to figure out how to thwart the evil man's plans, and then there's a door that says, inner sanctum of the entire operation, right? This is that sign on the door that say, we're going to look squarely at salvation and say, what did God do to accomplish this? To make unrighteous people righteous. To make sinners right before a holy God. There's only one way for anyone to be justified, and it is this way. It's by his grace as a gift. By his grace as a gift. So how does God forgive the unrighteous? That is question number one we're going to look at in the content of forgiveness. How does God forgive the unrighteous? The first part of our answer is it's a gift, which makes total sense with our context, right? We can't earn it from the law, Paul says a little later in chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death. That's something you earn. Your sin has earned for you death and, and punishment. But the free gift of God, in contrast, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We must recognize that the way that God can forgive the unrighteous is only by a gift. Unmerited favor. It's God's grace. Grace is something that you can't earn. It is God's grace. 
It is from him as a gift. But secondarily, not only is it a gift, but what's inside? Let's look inside this gift to see what is the content? What does it look like? What is inside this present, right? We need to unwrap it, and Paul does that for us. He continues to say that they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is a word you'll hear a lot at our church. Redemption in Christ should trigger for us the idea of redeeming something. And for us in our world, I think of redeeming a coupon at a grocery store or something, right? But for the audience here, the Roman church, they would have thought about the ancient slave market. They would have had the idea of someone being bought out of slavery. They would have had the idea of a ransom that had to be paid for someone else to be released. That's all tied up in the redemption that's found in Christ. So we need to continue to dig dig deeper. What, What kind of questions come up with ransom? Well, we know that Jesus paid the ransom, but who who is this debt owed to? We know that the debt's our fault. That's what we earn from our sin. But who is this debt owed to, and, and how was it paid? We need to dig a little deeper, Paul. Help us see. Look at the text, continuing in verse 24. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That's a big word. Propitiation. Found out it actually didn't exist 700 years ago. They had to make up a word for this word, and it's so specific. It means the appeasement or satisfaction of God's righteous wrath against our sin. In this word, we see who is this debt owed to? It's to God. We have earned God's wrath as sinners. And we even see it in our, in our text here in verse 23. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of who? God. We fall short of his glory. We miss the mark. That's what it means to sin. We sing it in our hymns. In Christ alone, we sing, Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. People get this wrong. There there are some churches that want to change the lyrics of this song because they're so adamantly against the idea of the payment for sin being paid to God. It's important for us to recognize that this gift was a payment for our sin and the payment was made to God for his just wrath against unrighteous sinners like you and me. This debt is owed to God because all sin is primarily and preeminently against him. We are the created, he is the creator. So we see who this debt is owed to, but how was it paid? Paul tells us. Put forward as a propitiation by his blood. How was it paid? It was by the blood of Jesus. Or what Peter calls the precious blood of Jesus. Hebrews 9.22 is helpful here. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
Payment is required, and what's required is the blood of Christ. There has to be an atoning sacrifice. There has to be payment for sin to a holy and just God. And the Old Testament was clear on the Levitical law of there has to be a substitutionary sacrifice. Someone has to die in your place to pay for your sins. There's debt to be paid. But this sacrifice had a characteristic, right? It had to be without blemish and without spot. It had to be perfect. It, it pictured something. It pictured what we needed for salvation. It pictured for us a righteous sacrifice. This gift is his righteousness. Our question is, how does God forgive the unrighteous? The answer is by gifting his righteousness. That's the only way. The only way for unrighteous sinners to be made righteous is if God himself gives you his righteousness. That's it. This gift of righteousness parallels for us the idea of free and costly, which has just been blowing my mind, looking at forgiveness. That forgiveness is free. It is a gift of grace. But it's God's righteousness. It's extremely costly. And we need to make sure that we retain those ideas when we talk about or think about forgiveness because we want to tell people it's a gift, it's free, you can't earn it. God loves you enough to forgive you your sins. But if they don't know the cost, even in our society, if you were to get a mutt, buy a dog for your family, it'd probably be, you could probably get it pretty cheap, but if you get like a purebred Labradoodle or something, that's not even a purebred, golden retriever, something that's pure, something that's pure, it's much more expensive, right? It's really expensive. How much more expensive is the pure righteousness of God? It's costly and it's free. Both are true. The character qualities of God that we see tied to these ideas is that God is merciful, not giving you what you deserve. But God is just. And He required payment for you to be forgiven. It was expensive. Everyone is unrighteous, and the only way we can be declared righteous by God is if God gifts us his own righteousness through his son, Jesus Christ, alone. He's the only way. The law cannot provide us with the righteousness we need. Only God can do that. This is how God forgives. How does God forgive unrighteous sinners by gifting his righteousness. But in our text, we also see more. We don't just see how God forgives. We see why. We see why God would forgive the unrighteous. He doesn't have to. Why would he do it? We've sung this morning of 
God's love, and that's true. We've sung this morning about God's mercy, and that's true. You can even see in God's forgiveness faithfulness because he made a promise and he kept it. You can see justice as we've just looked at again this morning. All of these things are displaying for us the character of God, right? And God is glorified when he puts himself on display for everyone to see. There's a central idea here that we often talk about, and it's that God is all about his glory. Our mission here at Redemption Hill is to primarily, first and foremost, glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. The chief end of man, what is our purpose in this life? Our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God is omnipotent, I mean, all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, He is eternal and perfect. He is loving and just. For him to put himself on display is not arrogance. It's grace. We need to see him. This is for his glory and for our good. We sing it in the verse of one of our songs. This the power of the cross. The son of God slain for us. What a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. What I want to do this morning, though, is really pin down in our text this answer because it was surprising to me. It was surprising to me to see how God, under the, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, provides for us the answer to this question of why does God forgive the unrighteous? Let's read our text its entirety and see if you can get the flavor. See if you can get Paul's point here. Starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God Through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why does God forgive the unrighteous? It's to show his righteousness. It's to show his righteousness. He's giving us a gift and he says, I'm giving you my righteousness and I'm going to lift it up for everyone to see. I want everyone to see that I am righteous. He says in our text that he was forbearing with our sins. 
He was long-suffering. He was patient. That was meant to lead us. That's his kindness leading us towards repentance. But he's basically saying, don't get me wrong here. Don't think that I'm a God like yourself. Don't misunderstand who I am. He is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, and who will not let the wicked go unpunished. God is love, but God is just. And we need to see all of these character qualities tied up in his righteousness. He is perfect. He is holy. He is right in everything he does. And the reason that he forgives the unrighteous is because he wants everyone to see his righteousness. God's righteousness has a massive amount of power. We see in our text that at the present time, he showed his righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier. Why is God just in showing his righteousness? He's just because he's paying the penalty for sin by his righteousness. Why is he the justifier? Justifier means he's giving us the righteousness we need so that God can say, yes. When he looks at the unrighteous, he says, I see Jesus' righteousness. So yes, you can come into my heaven because of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes when we talk about forgiveness, we talk about debt. And it's helpful. It's biblical. So we're going to take a minute and just think with me about what has happened from just a numerical standpoint, if we can. So if you stretch out, looking at, looking at debt, right? If we have a million dollars of debt, what's worse than a million dollars of debt? We're going to say a million dollars a month in debt payments, in perpetuity. doesn't stop, okay? A million dollars a month, and you have no chance to put a debt in this thing. And God says, I'm going to pay it. I'm going to pay it. I'm going to pay it with my righteousness, with Jesus' blood. He pays your debt. But not only does he do that, he gives you money. He puts it in your account as a credit. He gives you his righteousness, his right standing before God, and he says, this isn't just a deposit. Okay, This is a pension plan that Jesus worked for. You have reoccurring income, a million dollars a month coming in to your account forever. God's righteousness pays for that. Look at it. It's huge. It's massive. And we're talking about money, right? We're talking about dollars. Think for a minute about the pile of money it would take to accomplish that. And keep stacking it up. Just keep piling it on. Think about all the money that it would take. It would fill this room, the money that it would take to, to accomplish that. Friends, the currency of our redemption is the righteousness of Christ. It's by his blood. And 
It's massive. And we need to see it. This morning we've seen how God forgives and why he forgives. He forgives by gifting his righteousness. And why does God forgive sinners? To show his righteousness. That he is just. And he is merciful. There's one more thing we have to talk about. Because our text talks about it. We've skipped over it to this point. But we need to talk about how do we respond? This is Paul's theological argument, right? And we've talked long, you've listened well, but we would be remiss if we don't look in the text and say, what do we do? How, how, how do we get this righteousness? How do I become righteous before God? How do we respond? Our text mentions it several times. It says, through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe. God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And at the end of our text, it says that at the present time, he showed his righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How, how can we respond? How can we receive this gift of righteousness? It's by faith. It's by faith. Saving faith can be summarized in this way. Repent and believe. The Gospels tell us over and over to repent and believe. Saving faith can be described this way. It's a change of mind that results in a change of heart that results in a change of direction. The, heart, the head, the heart, and the, and the will are all involved. You need to believe the truth about the gospel. You need to understand it. You need to understand that I'm a sinner. And I can't earn my righteousness before God. The law is just a mirror. It just shows me my sin. I need God's righteousness. And I need to know that he offers that as a free gift that was really expensive for him. And then the heart gets involved. Once you understand these truths and you say, I hate my sin. My sin is the problem. And I love God's righteousness because it provides for me exactly what I need. And lastly, there's a submission, a submission to God's promises, to God's truth that says, Lord, there's no eggs in any other basket. There's no backup plan, no plan B. It's you alone. And I am confident that when I die and stand before the righteous judge, and he says, why will you let me why should I let you into my heaven? I'll say because of the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ. That was gifted to me. Romans 4 gives us a good picture. If you just look over Romans 4, 20 through 21, it says, 
Speaking of Abraham, his argument continues to show his faith. I just want to take a quick peek at it. He says, No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And I love this phrase, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Friends, that's faith. Being fully convinced that God is able to do it. Not only should we respond in faith, but I want to take a minute and just look at what it looks like to have a wrong response to this message this morning. We, many of us, know and believe and are trusting by faith. But we also need to think about what would it look like to not respond in faith? To, to doubt or trust in yourself for salvation? Well, for some of you this morning, it may be a feeling that you're immensely guilty. You just feel guilt-ridden over your sin and broken-hearted over it. And you sit here and you hear this and you're like, yep, I know. I know I'm unrighteous. We don't need a book to show me that. And you think, there's no way God could ever forgive everything I've done. I've messed up too much. Too bad. Let me encourage you to, to hear this. That your sin is not too great for God. When you say, God can't forgive my sin. It's too bad. It's too messed up. What you're really saying is, God's righteousness isn't enough. And it is. Here's the bad news. The bad news is, God's mercy is not more than his justice. God's love is not more than his hate for sin. But God's mercy is more than your sin. Much, much more. His righteousness is not lacking for you. Please turn to him in faith and trust that he is enough. He has paid it all. For some this morning, maybe, that aren't responding in faith looks like a proud heart. Maybe this morning you've thought, I knew these answers. I've memorized this text. Very familiar with it. I could have preached that sermon probably better. Or maybe you're thinking, this is great. I love this. All these sinners around me really need to hear this. God's pretty impressed with me. I'm doing pretty good. God's blessing me. He's happy with me. Matter of fact, he's pretty impressed with me. He might show me off when we get to heaven. Our righteousness is filthy rags. Your best effort is worthless. I say that in love. What you're saying is, 
you're trying to lower God's standard of righteousness by saying, look at me. Look how great I am. And what you're doing is you're scoffing at God's righteousness. Saying, that ain't nothing. Let me urge you, do not wait another minute. You're not promised another minute. What you are promised is that if you believe in Jesus Christ, and you believe that his righteousness is the only thing that will make you right before a holy and just God, set aside your pride and cast it at the cross and ask for God's mercy. Repent and believe so that you too can be made righteous before a perfectly righteous God. I want to talk to the kids in the room for a second. You've listened really well. Thank you for being patient. I have a question for you specifically. And maybe it'll sound like instruction to parents. When your parents require you to obey the first time, and you can't challenge, you can't make excuses, you can't delay, do you know why they do that? The reason that they require you to obey the first time, every time, is because what we're talking about this morning is that God is righteous. And he requires you to be righteous. The bad news is you can't be righteous on your own. And I bet you guys know that. I bet you know that you've messed up. And that you can't be perfect. As much as you want to be you can't. This is for you. God wants to gift you his righteousness if you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus alone. He wants to give you the debt to be paid for your sin and the righteousness so you can be right before God. Will you trust him and him alone? For those who belong to Christ, the Apostle John gives us great encouragement. Great promises for us to remember when it comes to this life. 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. We need to remember the gospel. We need to constantly go back and remember, I've messed up. But Jesus paid it all. My sin left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. He continues in chapter 2 saying, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. God's righteousness on display. How? How does God save sinners? How does he forgive the unrighteous? It's by gifting his righteousness. Why? Why does God forgive the unrighteous? 
It's to show his righteousness, his massive righteousness. May we respond to this truth in faith that this is how our God forgives. Let's pray. Righteous Heavenly Father, we come before you because of your Son, Jesus Christ. We are humbled to look into the mirror of your law to see that we fall short. We miss the mark. And we turn in faith because of your Son, Jesus Christ, who bled and died on the cross and rose victorious over the grave so that we could be made right with you. We are hopeless on our own, and our hope alone is in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your righteousness, your gift of love and righteousness for us guilty sinners. We need to be transformed by your word. We thank you for all that you have done for us, and we ask, Lord, that you would help us to not forget what your forgiveness looks like. Help us to live in a way that shows this gospel, that shows your righteousness to the world. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this morning, the opportunity to look into your word. We ask that your spirit would help us to submit to these truths in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.